There's an invisible war being waged in the financial markets every day. Tremendously deep-pocketed and politically connected players are using big data, dark exchanges, and microsecond trading advantages to exploit daily trading activity. Their actions make investing riskier and more costly for everyone else. But not only can't we see it, it's often cloaked deceptively as innovation that's good for the consumer like the practice of payment for order flow, which makes possible the commission-free trading that firms like Robinhood are using to draw in millions of first-time investors. In our opinion, it should be gone, okay? I think payment for order flow distorts order routing and it distorts the price of something because of the way they're separating it like that. I don't think they're gonna get rid of it because the, the, the people in Washington and the lobbyists are very, very strong and the folks like, you know, who are smart are paying these lobbyists to make sure that those rules don't change. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Adam Taggart, founder of Wealthion, welcoming you back for another week of making sense of money and the markets. We talk a lot about the markets and the price of financial assets on this program every week. But today, we're going to talk about the plumbing of that system, how it runs, and how in many ways it operates in ways that most of us don't see or understand. And how in many cases, this obscurity and what goes on within it further slants the odds against regular investors like you and me. We're fortunate to be joined today by Joe Saluzzi, partner, co-founder, and co-head of equity trading of Themis Trading LLC, a leading independent agency brokerage firm that trades equities for institutional money managers and hedge funds. He's also the co-author of the book, Broken Markets, How High-Frequency Trading and Predatory Practices on Wall Street Are Destroying Investor Confidence. Joe, it's so good to see you again, my friend. Thank you so much for coming on the program today. My pleasure. Always love talking to you. Thanks, Joe. Well, look, um, I'm going to dive into all of those questions about the, the plumbing and how markets work and how they may or may not remain broken here. But before we do, I'd just like to start with a question that I ask every one of our uh, guest experts before I introduce any potential biases of my own. What is your current assessment of today's global economy and financial markets? Well, I think everything is based on the Fed. How about that? I, I think, you know, markets are, sometimes you look at them and you say these prices are ridiculous. You know, it's inflated. We've had a bull market. We're running off the lows so much, you know, 50, you know, the lows of the post, you know, pre-pandemic, right? When the pandemic hit. But you, you got to think about, you know, what's driving the market and the, and the market is being driven by the Fed. It's been, been driven by the Fed for the last 13 years, in my opinion. So you can fight it and say, hey, this is ridiculous. This is stupid. I'm going to short this thing. Or you kind of hold your nose a little bit. So I'm kind of in the camp where I say, you know, I'll hold my nose as long as they're in there because the market loves the Fed being in. The, it, it's just, it is what it is. Look at every headline when it comes out. So. You know, are we overvalued? Yeah, we're probably getting towards the upper end. And when you look at traditional PE ratios and things like that, but am I going to say short the market or sell the market? No, because I'm not getting way of that big freight train called the Federal Reserve. So as long as they are there, I'd say that the, the market is going to continue on, even in light of a pandemic and growth rates that are going backwards, right? And as long as the second barrel of the shotgun being the federal, the, the fiscal side of it and, and the federal government continuing to pump in money, another you know, half, $550 billion yesterday, they were talking about a new money infrastructure projects. You, you can't get in front of that. You can't say, hey, we're, this is bad on valuation. So my, I, my part is I go along with it. Um, I would guess I would be bull. I'd be bullish in that sense. But, you know, I, I just think the money is coming in and you don't fight it. 
Okay, great. So uh, it's dictated by money flows right now. We've got uh, both the monetary and the fiscal uh, spigots turned on high. And until you see that change, you're going to have a, an optimistic slant. Um, great. Okay, so now that's, uh, that, that's prices. Um, and maybe we'll talk more about prices as we get into the end of this discussion. But I want to go deeper. And by deeper, I mean literally down into the networks of plumbing oh, yeah. that all this runs on. So can you uh, do us a favor and just, just start by giving us an overview of how the U.S. equity markets operate? And, and specifically, I'm talking about the exchanges. Can you just... Can you sort of just you know deconstruct for us exactly how it all works? Sure, sure. And it all changes. But you know, and in 2007, 2000, that was like the big year when everything changed in the stock market. There was a rule called Reg NMS, and it, it really changed the old specialist quote unquote system, which used to be the New York Stock Exchange, right? We I say used to be there would be 80% of the stock trading on the stock exchange. Now it's about you know 15% on the floor of the exchange. So what happened was in 2007, they 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 basically said, okay, you can have all these different exchanges. Reagan and Musk came out and said, if you, Adam, can start your own exchange, and if you do, you'll be part of the quote. So today we have 16 stock exchanges. Okay. Most of those are under the three families, which we call the families, which is the New York Stock Exchange. They own uh, the New York, they own five. NASDAQ owns three, and the SIBO owns four stock exchanges. So there's, there's a good chunk. There's a few smaller ones. There's IEX, which we're a big fan of, by the way, to full disclosure. We don't have any investment in them, but we're, we're big users of IEX. We think they're doing some great things there, and we get some great fills there. Then there's Memex, which is a new one, and a few others, the Miami Stock Exchange, the, the long-term stock exchange. So all of these stock exchanges, and then take on top of that at least two dozen ATSs or alternative trading systems. Some people refer to them as dark pools. These are the hidden liquidity centers. So those are usually broker operated and they're, you know, they are regulated by the exchange, uh, by the SEC. They do have to file uh, certain forms and so on, but those are dark pools. Those are non-lit venues. So you take all of this stuff and you put it together, right? And this is now, when you look at your quote, if you pull up your Ameritrade or Schwab or wherever you trade Robinhood or whatever, and you look at a quote and it says $10 bid offered at $10.05. Well, that's a consolidation of all of those 16 stock exchanges, and it's giving you the best bid or best offer. And then within that best bid and offer, likely a lot of times you'll have a lot of those dark pool, you know, midpoint peg orders, or some people will just put in the limit orders or whatnot, and those are the hidden venues. So they'll all interact. Now, anything, anytime it trades on a dark pool, you'll see it on the tape, but you won't see it prior to. This goes on all day long, and what happened was it shattered the liquidity. Okay, so we used to have these deep pools of buckets of liquidity at the exchange. The specialists had a book. Now, there was issues there as well. People complained about that, and there were valid concerns, and specialists got fined, and some of them got arrested for what they were doing down there. But that book of deep liquidity was there, and institutions felt comfortable with it. So, like, my job is to trade for institutions. What we do during the day when we're not writing notes or books or things like that, we trade for institutional clients. So, you know, my, I have mutual funds, hedge funds, pension funds. They all come to us and they say, hey, execute this for me. I need you to do a good job. So I've got to navigate that maze that I just explained to you and try to maximize the liquidity while minimizing their cost and make sure that no one spots me. And it's, it's, it sounds... You know, it's it's a lot harder than it sounds. So we, you know, we've been doing this for almost twenty years now as an independent small brokerage firm, which I think proves that you know what we're doing is some good work. And I'm basically fighting HFTs, algorithms, and everything else. So it's a complicated process. What looks simple when you look at that quote on Robinhood or Meritrade is a lot going on beneath the scenes. 
All right. So help me and our viewers understand, Joe, then you said sort of the game kind of changed in 2007, 2008. Um, what was the rationale for changing it this way? It sounds like you're saying um, it has made the liquidity more shallow on, on any one given individual exchange. That doesn't sound like a plus to me. So what was sort of the consumer benefit rationale to let this happen? Or, or was there none? Was this just letting people who wanted to uh, develop their own advantages, uh, giving, giving them free reign to do so? Yeah, you'll, you'll hear the word competition a lot. And, and the, the regulators and the folks who help the regulators craft that new that rule called Reg NMS will say that, hey, we need competition to the duopoly of the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ, which essentially there was only two stock exchanges. And then there were a few ATSs. There was a, a firm called Instanet, which I actually worked at before we went here, which we were trading off exchange. And they wanted to say, let's create these new venues where everyone gets to compete and we get to go part of that NBBO or the National Best Bidder Offer. And there'll be a trade through rule as well, and which is a big part of NMS, which means that if there's an offer at five cents and I'm trading offering at six cents on another exchange, you can't trade with me until you trade with the five cent guy, which is a fair thing. And it is fair. But it does. There's a lot of things, like I was saying before, that go on beneath that quote. So that that quote may only be good for 100 shares. The guy behind him may be good for 10,000 shares, but you can't get to him until you get to him. And then you start these races, which we'll maybe get into later with the high frequency trading guys, what they did over those years. And they figured out something called latency arbitrage, where they basically they were able to ping exchanges off of each other and race to go to one to go to another. And it created, in our opinion, excessive noise, excessive cost. And you know, somewhere along the way, we, we, we lost track of what are we trying to do here? We're trying to maximize liquidity and minimize costs, right? And it became a different game. Okay, so yeah. So, all right, so when, when there's less liquidity, we get the risk of things like uh, flash crashes, which I wanna to talk to you about in a bit here. Um, and you said the theory here was more competition um, was gonna to lead to better pricing, right? For the, for the customer, or better execution. Um, it sounds like from a lot of the things you listed, maybe that that didn't happen. And and you mentioned HFTs. We're gonna we're gonna talk about that too. Um, but I, I you know it's been what 13 years or so since uh, Reg NMS got got uh, enacted. Um, are are we net better off now or not? I mean, it sounds like a guy like you is spending a lot of your day, like you said, having to navigate and fight. You know hack through mm -hmm. the system and, and, and try to defend yourself from all the you know parties that are sort of trying to take advantage yeah. of you. And you're a professional uh, who does this for institutions. You know, the, the rest of us are just people who, you know, go to Fidelity and click the buy button. And we don't we don't see what we don't have any visibility to what's going on in the background. Uh, are, are we in a better place now than we were before Reg NMS or a worse place? I think there's two ways of looking at it. Like when you say retail, a lot of people say, OK, I'm a retail client and they say, OK, I'm going to trade. AT&T or IBM. And if you're only trading, say, once or twice a year or a few times a month for that matter, and it's a small, let's just say in relatively small size, you're probably not getting hurt. You're probably saying, okay, I'm just going to, you know, so I pay up a penny for it or, or whatever. You just want that trade done. And you're thinking about a long-term view of it, maybe six months, a year, two years, five years, whatever. You'll be okay today. You're fine. Now, but let's look at it a different way. Suppose you're also a retail investor, but you have a 401k. You work at a company where you you have a pension. Maybe you're a state employee. Well, that pension or that 401k is invested in bigger funds, whether they be mutual funds or they're trading it themselves, and they've got to move serious size. Pension funds are multi-billion dollar organizations. When they're coming in and out, those are the bulls coming through the market. 
So if that bull is being, you know, bull, I shouldn't call them bulls because they could be bears, whatever, right? But they're coming through and they're the elephants, let's call them that. And they're easily spotted unless they're being careful in what they do. And that's where the transaction costs may be leaking. So your 401k or your pension fund is maybe losing some percentage points because of the execution quality of the traders there. And I'm not saying that it's good. There's a lot of sophisticated traders. A lot of people know the game now. We know how to kind of navigate this, but it still takes a like excessive amount of work and they're not getting those deep pools of liquidity. They're not matching up with the other side that they're trying to do. What they do most of the time is they chop it up at algorithms throughout the day. So for instance, say a large pension fund has to sell 100,000 shares of XYZ stock or whatever. They don't just put it out there in one chunk. They say, put it into a VWAP algo, which is a volume weighted average price or some sort of algorithm, which will slice and dice throughout the day. And guess what? The sophisticated computers can spot that as well. And they can trade ahead of, and I'm not going to say front run because it's not their client, but they can trade ahead of and basically take advantage of that flow. So my point is you as a retail, you have to look at it in two ways. Yes, you are trading Robinhood or, or TD Ameritrade, but more importantly, you do have those bigger funds, mutual funds, hedge funds, and so on that you might be invested in. And that's where you have to be careful. All right. So let, let me ask you this. Um, I think a lot of people watching this video probably maybe saw the read the book Flash Boys by Michael Lewis, or maybe saw the 60 Minutes interview with him or some of the other interviews he did. So they probably have a general sense that at least as of, you know, five plus years ago, that there was this massive arms race where companies were investing in all sorts of technologies, uh, high frequency trading algorithms, uh, they were, you know, in, investing in digging fiber optic cables uh, to have a shorter uh, distance to get to the exchange so that th their orders could get there before anybody else's. You're having this massive uh, arms race and battle that's happening in microseconds. Um, but the, the people who have the advantage, they can front run orders or they can, um, you know, see what somebody else is doing and trade in advance. Um, and uh, to your earlier comment, you know, that, that sort of adds friction to the system in a way that, that you know, we might be talking fractions of pennies, but over huge, tremendous volume, that can be millions, you know, if not more, uh, that these guys are siphoning off of the system. I see you nodding here, but my, my, my general question for you is, has that been more or less cleaned up by this point in time? Are we still living in a world where there are these um, highly sophisticated, highly resourced um, players that are basically operating as, as market parasites here where they are looking at the data and you know jumping in front of those elephants you mentioned and you know adding friction and cost on there that that really shouldn't be there in a perfect world um that over the the, the big picture you know hurts the system but it enriches them in the process yeah and and they're still there they, they haven't gone away and what's interesting is that they've kind of fought themselves they they beat each other up over the years so much that the smaller ones got pushed out because the cost got too high. And the cost, the cost for you know one, I don't know what it exactly is, but somebody will come up and to you know to shave one microsecond off of trading is extremely high. A microsecond, you know, <laughs> we're talking about slivers of say a billionth of a second, you know, ridiculous amount of time frame. So, like you what you referred to earlier with the Michael Lewis book, where they they drilled a hole through the Pennsylvania mountains to go from Chicago to New York because they wanted to know what the futures prices were in Chicago so they can trade against the cash in New York just before everybody else. And the company that drilled that line charged a huge amount of you know, freight or whatever you want to call it to get access to the line. Well, that didn't last very long because the new technologies came out, microwaves, lasers. This is what they're doing now. They just continue to shave off 
latency, as they call it, because they need to trade ahead. And get, it becomes a game of not who's going who's gonna to lose, it's who's going to win. So the HFT world will always beat the institutional, slower traders, the retail. It's a question of who, which one of them is going to win the race. So to win the race, you have to invest constantly in these, whether it's your programming knowledge, your, 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 your people that you're hiring, or the hardware that you're using. And, and here's the rub, I think. They're just taking advantage of a system that's been built. I don't really necessarily have a problem if there's nothing illegal. Now, there has been some cases the SEC has found which were illegal, and they, found, and they find them. However, they're taking advantage of a system which was built, let's say, starting in Reg NMS, and which is supplied. I, I consider that they use these arms. I, I, I look at it in a war term. They're using the arms that are supplied by the stock exchanges. The stock exchanges are the arms merchants, except for a few. For instance, our friends at IEX don't do what I'm about to explain that the other ones do. The New York Stock Exchange, the SIBO, the NASDAQ, they all have co-location centers where they allow you to take your computer and put it right next to their main matching engine so you can reduce the latency. Their algorithms are right in their computer sitting there. And as soon as a market moves, whether it's the futures market or some other pair that they're looking at, they will send in an order immediately. In addition to the co-location, they will buy direct data feeds from the stock exchanges who are more than happy to supply this at a high cost, extremely high cost. So, and they'll take that information and they'll, they'll rapidly fix, figure out what's going on. And then they'll try to win the race. It's always about winning the race. Can I win the race? Can I beat the, and the bigger ones won and they knocked out the smaller ones. So you'll see it over the years, the past few years, smaller HFTs either got merged into bigger ones or they went out of business because they couldn't compete. The bigger ones just kept getting bigger and bigger and fatter and fatter and more dominant in there. And they're out there now extremely dominant, but they're being supplied by the stock exchanges to do what they do. So if you ask me who's really at fault here, I would say the stock exchanges. They shouldn't be giving out this information. They shouldn't be doing certain certain things, but they do, and it's all legal. It's crazy. It sort of sounds like a, a bank uh, selling uh, safe cracking tools to safe crackers. <laughs> Even though <laughs> yes, safe cracking is exactly. illegal, they're still making a lot of money selling those, those tools. They're going to do it. Mm. Yeah. Um, well, so you, you mentioned that um, the the industries evolved so that the smaller players got outcompeted, and we now have have the bigger, most dominant players. Um, are we worse off now than we were, or or you know, I, I, I'm curious. When we look at it in terms of the impact on society and the impact on you know regular people, um, is it better to have a few big offenders in this case, or to have many small ones duking it out? That's a good question because, you know, are they competing with each other? And that would that help if there were smaller ones and fighting each other? You know, I don't know. It's like you put 12, put 20 crooks in the room. Is that better? I, I don't necessarily know there. I think that the SEC did find, you know, and I think they're outgunned, by the way, the SEC. They don't have the, the budget to really keep up with this. They don't even have the knowledge up until now. They finally, built, by the way, they finally built something called a consolidated audit trail, which took since the flash crash of 2010, when, when it was first invented or thought about. So here we are in 2021, 11 years later, and they're just finalizing something called the Consolidated Audit Trail, which will take all of these exchanges and, and options exchanges and stock exchanges and kind of consolidate that data so that the SEC can get this better eye in the sky to figure out, are these guys really doing something bad? Are they spoofing one market so they can lay it off in another? Are they bidding on an exchange here so they can sell it in a dark pool here? They can't tell right now. It's very difficult to find out who's doing what. So I think the consolidated audit trail will help them. 
I hope to see that. I hope to see I mean, they bring a number of cases against these guys who have been doing some of these bad things. But one of the problems with the, even with the cat, they call it the cat, they don't have futures data. So what we were talking about before, whether you need to know what's going on in Chicago and the futures market to, to and, and the New York cash market, well, the SEC is only going to have the cash market. So even though it's a much better system, it's still only a, a, you know, a piece of the pie. They really need to get the two together. But the CFTC controls the futures market. The SEC regulates the cash and the options in the exchange and the stock market. They don't talk to each other. You know, it's two competing regulators. So you got a problem there. And guess what? The, the bad guys know that. <laughs> and they're, they're more yeah. than happy to take advantage of it. So, so to kind of continue your analogy of the arms race, I mean, it's sort of like the, the, the bad actors here are using howitzers and uh, the law enforcement teams are using pea shooters, right? Um, you, you talked about the cat. The cat, as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's, it's sort of like a master tape, right? So you mentioned we have all these different exchanges now uh, that, that uh, things run on. And uh, really nobody, uh, at least nobody on the, the regulatory side, had a master view as to what was happening across them. So they could be watching maybe one exchange and some player's behavior on that exchange, but totally ignorant on what that player was doing over on you know, a, a different exchange. Uh, and now that they've got the cat running, that helps, but you're saying it's still not complete, right? So um, right. In, in, in like anything, usually... Uh, you know, if there's money to be made, if there's big money to be made, um, you know, the players that operate in that space will probably always be able to out innovate and outspend uh, the you know law enforcement agencies. That's just sort of the way it's always sort of been from time immemorial. I see a nodding here. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I, I tell you a quick side story on the cat. Yeah. Before you go on. The cat, the predator right now, Finner is building the cat. They're finalizing Finner, the self-regulatory agency that we all are members of which is great. But the predecessor to FINRA was a firm called Thesis, and they were originally designed to build this cat. Thesis was an offshoot of an HFT firm called Tradeworks. They came out and they bid for the project, essentially. And who was in charge of selecting the winning bidder? The SROs, the stock exchanges. So you talk about the, the fox in the hen house. They select the firm, which, which botched it up. You can't intentionally or not, I don't know, but they botched this thing up. So it took years of, of delays and, and problems. And finally, they, they said, you, you're done. You, you're done. You get rid of you. FINRA, come in and fix this thing. But it was a wrench in the engine. And was it there? Put, was it put there intentionally? Right. Was it intentional? I don't know. I don't, I don't, I, I, I'm not on the inside of that, but it's certainly suspicious to me. Yeah. yeah. Well, at the end, it certainly served their interests, right? So um, let, let's move now to what I understand and not entirely well, I'm looking for you to clarify things here, um, is kind of sort of one of the next generations in which, uh, you know, average investors are being predated in ways that they don't understand. And, and this is this um, payment for order flow model that's been created. Um, so Robinhood, that's a name that a lot of people recognize because it's in it's in the, uh, the media a lot. You know, that, that's a new uh, trading platform. And it's zero commission trades. So if you open an account with Robinhood, you can make as many trades as you want, and Robinhood's not going to charge you anything for that. Well, why are they? How do they make money if they're not going to charge you? Right in the old old days, you they charge you a commission. Well, what they do is they sell their trading data to companies that want to buy that data, and then use that data to basically as an advantage in their own trading. And I think Citadel is a huge purchaser of Robinhood's data flow uh, order flow, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so can you comment on this? Uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of ink being spilled right now about how this is great because it, it opened up the era, uh, it, it, it opens up trading and investing to 
many more people that couldn't quote afford to do it beforehand. Um, and of course, there's a lot of people on the other side of this saying, hey, look, if, if you're not paying for the product, then you are the product. Yeah. And, uh, and that a lot of stuff's being done with this, this data that actually is making the price you pay more expensive down the road or putting you at some sort of disadvantage. So can you, do you have a strong opinion one way yeah. or the other here? Yeah. And, and, and just as a, as, an, as a little history on payment for order flow, it goes back decades. And one of the original brokers who, who brought payment for order flow to the market was Bernie Madoff and Madoff Securities. And what they did was they tried to trade New York Stock Exchange stocks off of, like we were talking about before, 80% was traded on exchange. Well, a sliver of it was traded off exchange. And it was a firm like Madoff that came in and said, I'll pay you for your order flow if you send it to me and I'll execute it for you, Mr. Retail Broker. And then he figured out a way to make money off of it. Well, you know, go fast forward 20, 30 years, that model has now been embedded deep, deep into the stock market. Everything revolves around payments and rebates. This is the way it works. So Robinhood is more than happy to say, hey, zero commission. And we'll pick on Robinhood because like you said, they're the ones in the news. They're going to route that order, not to a stock exchange, not to a dark pool, and which are, by the way, all dark pools are not bad. They're getting, they, there's their ATSs, but we'll get to that later if you want. But they will route it to a market maker. And Citadel happens to be the, big, big, be the biggest one out there. There's a few others. And the market maker will say, okay, I'll pay you 10 mils, a tenth of a penny, 15 mils. Robinhood happened to figure out a better way of doing it. They get a percentage of the spread. So the wider spread names, they actually make more money. So there's a conflict of interest right there, but they will get a payment for every order that they send over to the market maker who will pretty much guarantee a fill. Okay, now the market maker is going to commit their capital and say, I will sell, you know, okay, you're looking to buy hundred shares. I'll sell it to you. I'll even give you price improvement. I'll even say, okay, if the stock is offered, say the stock is $15 bid offered at $15.05, I'll give it to you at 15 spot 049, slight price improvement. So the client says, oh, wonderful. I beat the offer and it cost me zero. What, what's the problem here? Well, the problem is the market maker doesn't do this. Why would somebody pay to execute and take risk? Okay, essentially the market maker is taking risk at that point because he sold you stock and now he's got to go out there and buy it and flatten his position out. Well, it becomes not necessarily about that one order. It becomes a question of all the orders. Can, can, you know, if they can see them all together, well, then they get much more intel on it. And it's just that it's their business model. Okay, I, I get it. I understand what the market makers are doing. The funny thing is the market makers, you know, if you said to them, if payment for order flow ended tomorrow, they would still make money. They would still figure this out. The problem is going to be the retail brokers. So everyone got used to zero commission. The retail brokers couldn't do it anymore. They would have to go back to seven, ten dollars a trade, and then of course the retail of the community would be up in arms. How could you charge me ten dollars? I was just paying zero. Well, you were paying more than zero, and we would argue that all of this flow that gets done off exchange is actually hurting the spread. Okay, where in, in, instead, if your order was going in and it was helping the limit order book build a book, tightening the spread. That $15 bid offered at $15.05 may actually be $15.03 offered at $15.04. So it's a penny wide spread of real deep liquidity with real retail interacting, institutions interacting, everybody getting together. That's how you get price discovery. But when you separate flow and you start to pull it in all different directions and essentially segment it, and Chairman Gensler, the SEC's new chair, he had two problems when he was talking about market makers. And one of them was segmentation and the other was concentration. So segmentation, he said that you're segmenting this flow. It should be interacting, like I just said, and also concentration in that it's going to, going to a few big market makers. It's making them really strong. 
So I believe that the SEC is going to be coming out shortly because they said they were, that they were doing a study of the GameStop uh, scenario earlier in the year, and they may make, start to make some, some proposals to change some of this payment for order flow. In our opinion, it should be gone. Okay, I think payment for order flow distorts order routing and it distorts the price of something because of the way they're separating it like that. I don't think they're going to get rid of it because the, the, the people in Washington and the lobbyists are very, very strong. And the folks like, you know, who are smart are paying these lobbyists to make sure that those rules don't change. So we'll see. But we think it's just a bad thing that shouldn't even be in the market. All right. That's a great explanation of a complicated topic, Joe. And for you folks that are watching, um, if you are enjoying this video and having great experts like Joe in the program, please take just a quick second and hit that like button below. All right, Joe. So let's say that uh, you get your wish. Um, the uh, Gensler rules that, uh, you know what, we're, we're getting ready to pay for order flow. Um, wh what do you think would happen? What would the repercussions be? Uh, retail commissions are going to go up. Okay, commission. They all of a sudden because uh, Robinhood makes eighty percent of their money from paying for order flow. So you can't be in business right. if you're so a retail. Robinhood broker. goes out of business, but everybody else, Fidelity, whatever, they're going to start well, charging a couple well, bucks a trade again. It, it used to be five bucks a trade, eight bucks a trade, but I would argue that may not be the worst thing because I, I think that zero commissions actually is hurting things. I think it's causing too much trading. I think it's cause, it's becoming the gamification is the word that a lot of people have used where people feel like I can get in and out of things. It's not costing me anything. It's causing over trading, which is the worst thing, by the way, a retail investor can do is over trade because you're going to end up, I compare it to the casinos in Las Vegas. Why do they build billion dollar hotels and casinos in Las Vegas? It's not because of the room rates. It's because of the folks at the table who just continue to spend money. And the longer they can keep those folks at the table, we'll give them some free drinks if they need to keep them there. The odds are they're going to lose money. If you come in only one and you bet one hand and you walk away, well, you're a winner. They don't want you. They want the losers and the losers stay there longer and they over trade. And that's what happens in the stock market. You end up doing things you shouldn't do. Maybe you got an idea and you you and somebody told you something and you made some money and then you go back in and you do it again. And next thing you know, you're losing money. It becomes a, a bad, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm an investor. I don't like to trade. I like to invest in stocks that I think are good in my own, in my own personal portfolio. I don't like to trade them in and out. I think that in the end, you'll lose. So the market loves that volume. Stock exchanges love that. The more volume you do, the more money they make because they can sell the data feeds and the co-location for, for more money. But when the volumes contract, and I, to go back to your question, what I think would happen is volumes would lower. So, you know, we're averaging maybe about 10 billion shares a day in the U.S. now. I think you'd probably shave 20% of that off overnight because that's excessive noise that doesn't need to be there. But I don't think it's a bad thing. And I also think that you'll start to get deeper pools of liquidity and tighter spreads. Yeah. Can, can, can I restate what you said just to make sure that I'm, I'm understanding correctly? So if you estimate that about 20% of the trade volume really is sort of unnecessary or over trading, as you're saying, the net result of that then to what you're saying is, is um, the, the, the more you trade, the more you over trade, the more the odds are going against you. Right. So basically that that's that that 20% that's excessive is basically only hurting people and enriching the few money makers that are participating in the pay for uh, order flow. Is that is that true? Like we basically 20% of current right. trading that is really nothing but just sort of a, a money transfer from the poor over traders to the, the filthy rich uh, few right. market makers. And I'm guessing on 20, of course, I don't know the number. What, whatever, there's, yeah. There's a percentage, but as a whole, right? Again, there may be a few traders out there who are excellent traders 
who know exactly what they're doing, who pick their spots, who use great technicals, have great fundamental analysis, and they trade a lot. And there's nothing wrong with that. But there's also a lot of other traders who are coming in based on something that they saw on a message board and somebody else told them to do something and they really don't know and they're just kind of guessing. The guessing will go away. Okay, that's really what shouldn't be in the market because guess when you guess you will lose. Eventually you're going to lose. We hope you've been enjoying this excellent discussion with trading specialist Joe Saluzzi. The interview continues in part two where Joe gets into the specifics of dark pools, high frequency trading, what was responsible for the recent flash crash in gold, and why the likelihood of seeing more such flash crashes in the markets going forward is concerningly high. Joe also gives a strong prediction on whether or not the SEC will approve a Bitcoin ETF within the next year. To watch part two, just click on the link provided in the description of this video below, or go to youtube.com slash Wealthion. But before you go, please don't forget to hit that like button and then click the subscribe button below if you haven't already. It only takes a second and it really helps us out as the more subscribers this channel has, the more big name experts we can attract on this program in the future. Oh, and if you'd appreciate a free, no strings attached portfolio review by a financial advisor who can help manage your portfolio with the risks that Joe warns of in mind, just go to Wealthion.com and we'll help you set one up. Okay, I'll see you over at part two of our interview with Joe Saluzzi.